We have been in the midst of a series uh, called The Art of Marriage, and uh, we have been talking about a small book, uh, but a very significant book, in the wisdom literature of your uh, portion of your Bible called The Song of Solomon. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to go ahead and get them out now. Uh, graduates, I know that you have one, uh, so go ahead and uh, bust open the, uh, the plastic and uh, find, if you have your Bibles, page 1220 is where we are going to be. For the rest of you, you'll have to find it on your own, sorry. <laughs> it's uh, pretty well in the middle of your Bibles, and so the Song of Solomon is where we are going to be, and uh, this morning we will be talking about uh, the art of intimacy, the art of intimacy, and so um, uh, we will begin uh, that this morning. We will be in Song of Solomon chapter 3, and so if you have your place, uh, we'll be in chapter 3 starting around verse 6. Um, if you don't have your text, that's just fine, the text will be on the screen. Again, Song of Solomon Starting around chapter 3, verse 6. If you would pray with me this morning. Father, we're grateful for the time that we have uh, together. We're grateful for your holy word, uh, your inspired and inerrant word that you have preserved for us uh, through, throughout the generations. And Father, we're so grateful that your word is uh, so very applicable and practical to our life. And we're grateful that you uh, reveal yourself and that you history. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken uh, uh, to humanity in various means and in various ways. And uh, Father, at the, uh, just the right time, you have spoken to your son. Jesus Christ, and you have sent him into uh, our added uh, humanity to his divinity, and you have showed us yourself uh, through your son. Jesus, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for your life, for your teachings, and uh, for your death and burial and resurrection, so that we, by faith alone, can be made right with you. We can be made new creatures and be empowered and enabled by your spirit uh, to become changed and to, and to affect our world and to await your coming and to bring your kingdom on this, on this earth. Father, uh, we are also grateful that you have preserved your text for us and that you speak through your word. Father, I ask now that you would give us, Father, I ask that you would help me to clearly articulate uh, your word in a way that's faithful, in a way that's accurate, in a way that's meaningful and impactful, spirit, that you would move uh, through my lips and that you would have your way in our hearts. We ask it in the great name of our Lord and great God, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a, um, with a fable. I want to begin with a short fable, and I think the point of this fable um, will, uh, will be made known and will be pretty easy for you to see, I hope. And the fable begins like this. The man who was visiting town was situated right along uh, a quite substantial river, and it was a river town, and this man uh, was visiting uh, from out of town. And he uh, proceeded to find a restaurant uh, at this river located uh, just on the riverbanks. And so it was an open-air restaurant. The tables were right up, very close to the river. It was really a, a lovely place to eat. And so he decided, uh, he was uh, away on business, and he decided to go eat at this restaurant. And so he goes, and he finds his table, and he's meeting uh, with an associate, uh, a business friend of his. And as they are uh, eating dinner, he notices something out, out of the corner of his eye. And he notices uh, uh, coming up out of the river a very large alligator. And so he, he notices this. And, uh, and again, the restaurant is, is located very close to the river. And as he began to look around, he noticed uh, that in this restaurant there, it was jam-packed. It was really busy. It was dinner time, and there were families and uh, young people and teenagers and, uh, and elderly people. It was jam-packed with people of all sorts and sizes. And he notices this alligator coming up out of the river. And so he thought, well, that's kind of odd. I'm going to keep my eye on it. And so he continued to have conversation with his friend. Uh, but out of the corner of his eye, he noticed that this alligator uh, continued to, to lurch closer and closer and to inch its way closer to the restaurant. And he began to, to be a, a little concerned about that. He looked around the restaurant and he noticed uh, the people sitting by the river noticing, noticing the alligator, but they didn't say anything. They just went on as if business was usual. And so as the alligator lurched closer and closer, he began to get very uh, concerned. And as an alligator uh, uh, began to even approach a table, he stood up in that moment and said, hey, watch out, there's an alligator. To which there was a young girl sitting uh, right by her mother and the alligator approached her and bit her on the leg and took a chunk of her flesh. The man stood up in horror and said, does anybody see what just happened? There was weeping, there was crying. The mother scooped up uh, her little girl and began to rush her to the hospital. And as he looked around, no one said a word. 
He looked around and the dad continued to eat his meal. The teenage brother continued to, uh, you know, text on his uh, iPhone. And everyone in the restaurant went on as if business was usual. And he said to his friend who is a member of this town, did you just see what happened? And the man told him this. Of course I saw what happened. Everybody knows that there's a huge alligator in the river. But we don't talk about alligators. It's rude to talk about alligators in our culture. And so just don't mention it. And the man was beside himself and he stood up and he said, what kind of town are you? How can you not talk about an alligator that just took a piece of flesh from this little girl? And everyone, of course, he's making a scene at this point. Everyone stared at him and they all said in unison, we don't talk about alligators. And he began to look around as he stood confused and bewildered, and he noticed something about the people in this town. He looked around, and he noticed that there were uh, wounds on all young to old. He noticed that there were people who were uh, amputees. They had legs and arms missing. He noticed as he looked around in particular at the young people, the teenagers and the young adults, and he noticed that there were scars and large gashes in their body. He noticed that the alligator had attacked many, many people in this town, and they lived with it. And as he sat down, he thought to himself, why don't we talk? Why does this town not talk about the alligator? I hope you see the point of of this simple fable. Uh, This, I believe, is very much how the American evangelical church handles the issue of sexuality. It's the alligator that comes out of the river, if you will, not to portray uh, sex as uh, necessarily bad, but uh, within certain contexts outside of God's provision. uh, It certainly can be that. This is how we deal with the subject of sexuality in our church. It is an alligator, and we don't talk about it. It's rude to talk about it. And all the while in our congregations, in this congregation, I'm sure, and in every other congregation across America, there are people that have scars and have emotional wounds from the alligator of sexuality, and we fail to talk about it. And so my question to you this morning, as we kind of get into this section, the art of intimacy in the Song of Solomon, is this. Does God tell us anything about human sexuality? Does God speak on this very sensitive sensitive yet uh, profoundly impactful subject in most all of our lives? Does, Does God have anything to say about this? And I would venture to say from our text this morning in particular that indeed he does. God talks about the alligator, and I think that we should too. And so we're going to begin to do that this morning. Uh, If you uh, look through the book of of Solomon, you get eight chapters. And my proposal, uh, my perspective on the uh, the book of Song of Solomon is that it's sequential. It takes us through of attraction all the way through um, uh, the the life of a marriage. And so, if we take a look at the outline, what we've seen uh, thus far is we've seen the art of attraction. We've seen a godly couple, a young man and a one uh, a woman, uh, attract to one another. What is it that they uh, are attracted to? It's their godly character. We've seen them date, and and I would suggest maybe be engaged. Although I'm imposing. Uh, the those images from our culture, but we've seen their, their relationship progress in a healthy, godly way. We have seen them deal with premarital passion in a healthy way, in a godly way. And this morning, uh, number three, we see the art. We see the art of intimacy. And so we've seen them attract, we've seen them date, we've seen them be engaged, if you will. And this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see them get married. We're going to see them get married, and we're going to begin with what I would call the wedding processional. And so if you turn with me in your Bibles, verses 6 through 11 of chapter 3, what we see is the wedding procession. Now, weddings um, in that day and uh, in ancient Israel were a little different than weddings are today, as you can imagine. And so basically the way that weddings would work in that culture 
is that there would be a day, the wedding day, where there would be a great processional that would go all throughout the town. Now, granted, this is King Solomon, and he is the king of Israel at this point, and his processional would be in particularly big and important. It would be a national event. Uh, but there would be a processional uh, led by the groom leading to the bride's house, and the, the groom would then pick up his bride, take the bride back to his home for the wedding ceremony, if you will. There would be... Uh, the vows. And then after that, there would be a prolonged party. And so uh, if you've, I'm sure most of us have been to um, uh, wedding, you know, parties, the receptions after a wedding. Uh, in Israel, they would last up to a week, if not longer. And so it would be a great community event, just a big party. And they would celebrate this union. But before that would begin, the, the, the husband-to-be would take his bride. Uh, they would um, get married. They would say their vows. And then they would go to what in, in, in the Bible is called the bridal chamber. And the husband would take his wife to the bridal chamber and they would consummate their marriage uh, right then and there at the very beginning of the season of partying, if you will. And then what they would do is after the, the, the marriage had been consummated, they would then go back and join the party and party along with their friends for however long. Now... I'm pretty grateful that we don't do it that way. As far as I'm concerned, that would be a little awkward. But hey, that's just me. You know, that's how they did it back then. And so that's how it would be. And so what we see in verses 6 through 11 is the processional. We see Solomon on the way to get his bride to be. And as we read the text, it kind of, it kind of sounds like a Macy's Day parade. It sounds like the host of a Macy's Day parade talking about describing this wonderful procession down uh, you know, Main Street, if it were. And so let's go ahead and do this. Let's read the text together, verses 6 through 11. I'll make a few comments on it. Starting in verse, verse 6, uh, again, the narrator, I think, speaks here. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter, or couch, if you will, of Solomon. Around it, are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by the night. King Solomon made for himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was laid, inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And so we see a, a picture of this great and grand wedding processional. Solomon is going, he is going, I believe, up uh, to north to Lebanon to get his bride-to-be. A couple things to point out here. We're not going to dwell on this long. First of all, we see that there is splendor. We see there is splendor and there is security. First of all, notice the splendor here. I mean, Solomon, of course he's king, so he could do this. But he spared no expense. I mean, he spared no expense. It was as, it, it, it would be like uh, getting your bride to be a, a two-carat, di- uh, you know, a ring, if you will. He went all out. He had myrrh, frankincense, frankincense, expensive uh, items. The wood of Lebanon was the choicest of wood, silver, gold. He inlaid his chair with purple. All of this shows us is that this uh, processional was with great splendor, and he loved his wife so dearly he wanted it to be the best. Not only was there splendor, but there was security. Did you notice how many, the text doesn't call it this, but, but groomsmen, right? Notice how many groomsmen there were. How many were there? Sixty groomsmen. Okay, how many of you have been to a wedding where there was anything close to sixty groommen, groomsmen? Well, no. Uh, the biggest uh, that I have been a part of or seen was twelve. In fact, I was a part of a wedding in college. Um, my friend uh, was getting married, and he apparently his bride was uh, popular or had a lot of friends, or she couldn't choose, you know. And so she chose twelve uh, bridesmaids, and so he was, you know, like guys are. He's like, okay, my friends, one, two, three. Oh gosh. <laughs> and so he just went down the list, you know. And I happened to be his roommate at that time, and so I said, sure, I'll do that. And so it's all twelve. 24 of us were there on the stage. And the, the point here is that uh, Solomon was providing security. Notice they were skilled fighters. They were experts in war. 
And this made sense because he was traveling to Lebanon, which would be a great distance, pick up his bride, if Lebanon was indeed her home, and then taking her back to Israel, if you were. And so this would be quite a trip. He wanted to provide security for his bride-to-be, as husbands should do now. Uh, Forgive the joke, but it would be as if he had 60 Chuck Norrises there by his side. What else could you ask for? And so basically what we see is is the wedding processional here. And when we jump into the next part of our text, uh, we are going to skip the party. And so there's the processional, the processional go. We skip the actual wedding. We, we, we don't see any of, of, the, of the vows or any of that. Uh, we don't see the exchanging of rings or any, any of that. We see the processional, <coughs> the wedding then happens, and then the party commences. And what we're going to see as we jump into chapter 4 is what happens in the bridal chamber. What we're going to see is a, a sneak peek, if you will, for lack of a better word, of this couple's Wedding night. And it's going to be beautiful and lovely as God intended it to be. And so I, I would like to do this. I want us to transition into worshiping God, into worshiping Jesus musically through song. And so as our team, come, come on guys, go ahead and come up. As our team uh, comes up, we're going to prepare to do that. I think what we see here, while speaking specifically about Solomon and his bride, I think as all text is intended for us uh, to do, it points us towards our great bridegroom. It points us towards Jesus. And what we see, the great biblical pictures that Jesus is presented as the husband of the church, as the bridegroom of the church. And the Bible says that our great bridegroom in the church is his wonderful, splendorous, uh, that's not a word, full splendor, um, beautiful bride. And what we see is that the Bible says there will be a day when Jesus will lead a processional to get his bride. There will be a day when Jesus comes back to pick up his bride, to make his bride pure and holy, to give us resurrected bodies, and we will join him in a wedding feast. We will join him. The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will be in unison and uh, in relationship, perfect relationship with our great, our great husband, our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to sing songs about Jesus and about his return and worship him. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you reveal to us in your word um, that your son is indeed our great bridegroom. And like every husband, like every uh, groom is meant to be, uh, he is meant to love his bride sacrificially. He is meant to love uh, his bride as himself. And he is meant to give uh, himself uh, for her in every way. Jesus, we're grateful that you have done that for us, that you are the perfect husband, uh, that you sacrifice everything, uh, the comforts of heaven, uh, uh, your uh, undiluted uh, deity as you added humanity uh, to your deity, and you were perfectly God and perfectly man. You humbled yourself. You became one of your creatures. You lived a life of perfection that we could never live. You died a horrible, agonizing death that we deserved. And, and Jesus, you took the weight of the sin of all humanity, of all time, and you bore it for us. You indeed have conquered the grave. It is overwhelmed. The victory is won, and you have risen from the dead. Jesus, we're grateful for your resurrection. We're grateful that you now sit at the right hand of God the Father. You minister uh, to us, and that one day you will come back as our great Groom, as our great husband, you will return to us. You will transform our lowly bodies into a heavenly, glorious, resurrected body. Uh, You will allow our spirits uh, to be reunited with our flesh, our recreated flesh, and we will be with you in relationship forever and ever. And we will enjoy you infinitely more every day as eternity passes. What a wonderful husband and bridegroom you are. We love you, Jesus. We ask now as we give of our offerings, of our monies, pray that you would help us to not hold on to it. Everything that we have is yours. Everything is a gift. Father, we freely received it, and we freely give it to this church and to everything and everyone who is in need. I pray that you would make us generous, give us open hearts and open pocketbooks that we may honor your son and make an impact both here and abroad. We love you. We ask it in Christ's name.
You guys may be seated. At this point, our ushers are going to be preparing to take our offering. Uh, kids, feel free to stick around for that. Once that's done, I'll go ahead and hop up. Kids, you can go off to Kids Church. Uh, one thing to note, uh, John is going to be available uh, for uh, children, preteens, teenagers uh, that are not of children's church age. He's going to be available back there uh, for you as we get into some things that are uh, going to be maybe a little bit more uh, for mature audiences. And so I invite you to go ahead and take advantage of John's service uh, if you would like. Ben Kim, thank you so much. Wonderful text out of Isaiah, put to song. Beautiful. Kids, at this point, feel free to go ahead and head out to Children's Church. So, adios. Uh, again, John is waiting back there for you uh, preteens or teens if you want to join him. If not, I think he's going to jump back into the service. And so, kids, feel free to go ahead and, and uh, head out to Children's Church. Uh, for the rest of you who are sticking around, uh, turn with me to chapter 4. And so we make our way to chapter 4 of the book of Song of Solomon. And uh, in chapter 3, uh, uh, the text that we previously went over, we have seen uh, a public procession, if you will. And uh, from a public procession, we now move to a private union. From public procession to private union. And so our text this morning, uh, chapter 4, essentially chapter 4, is where we're going to be. A a couple main sections here as we uh, take an intimate look uh, at this couple on their wedding night. Uh, In verses 1 through 15, we see what I would call preparation. Uh, There is the preparation for consummation. And then uh, in verses 16 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, we essentially see the consummation of this marriage. And so we move from preparation uh, to consummation. And so we're going to go ahead and jump right into this text. Uh, Several verses. There's a lot here. So we are going to uh, fly through it and hopefully then uh, make several applications for everyone here. Uh, So we're going to begin. Solomon begins. He prepares uh, for the consummation of his marriage. uh, And he does so by praising the beauty of his wife, his wife uh, there in their bridal chamber. And he does so by verbally praising her. And he, uh, we're going to see a progression, if you will. He starts uh, from the top, if you will. He starts uh, from her head and he moves right down her body. And this is, is what we're going to see as he explores his body, uh, the body of his wife, excuse me, for the first time. And so we're going to begin. He begins by commenting on his uh, wife's eyes. And he begins by saying they're like doves, they're peaceful, they're, tw- they're tranquil, they're soft and beautiful. And he says uh, they are beautiful like doves behind her veil. Uh, something interesting in Jewish culture, uh, a bride would wear her veil uh, all the way through the procession and through the wedding, and she would not remove her veil until she got into, into the wedding chamber. And so he begins in verse 1 saying this, read with me, behold, you are beautiful. My love, his pet name for her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And so he begins by praising his wife's beauty, and he repeats it twice. Uh, I think that is a, a good thing. I think a woman can never be told enough that she's beautiful, and guys, we can never say it enough. And so he says it twice here. And then he says, your eyes are doves. Your eyes are like doves, some translations may say, behind your veil. And so they are in their bridal chamber, and she has her veil on, and he peers into the wonderful, tranquil, tranquil, peaceful eyes of his bride, and she says they are lovely. He then moves down to her hair, and he says this, Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Okay, gentlemen, you may get into some trouble if you, uh, 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 you know, are, are uh, with your wife in the intimacy of your bedroom, and you begin by saying, uh, baby, your, your hair is like goats. That may not be the best thing. Let me interpret this for you. Um, what is happening here is his wife evidently has dark, curly hair, most likely, and I think she is uh, removing her veil, which would have her hair up, and what he sees is she removes her veil, and her beautiful black hair, uh, curly hair, cascades down her neck uh, in a pattern somewhat like this, and he likens it in a very gentle and loving way to a a flock of dark uh, Palestinian goats. Palestinian goats would be dark. Sheep would be white, but these goats would be dark, and so when they would stream down the mountain, and essentially what it would look like is, is, you know, when you travel down a mountain, you kind of go 
like this, do you not? And he sees her hair uh, falling down the tresses of her neck, and he says, it's beautiful, like a flock of goats uh, at sunset walking down this Palestinian mountain. And so he's mentioned her eyes. He moves down to her hair, and next he compliments her mouth. He's going right down the body of his wife, and he compliments her mouth, and he starts with her teeth, uh, which seems kind of odd to us, and then he moves on to her lips. Notice what he says in verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of, of, of shorn ewes or sheep that have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its sheep. Uh, again, gentlemen, you might want to be careful with this one, uh, saying your wife's teeth are like sheep. Um, again, what he's saying here is that uh, her teeth are clean is what he is saying, and that they are white. Notice, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes that have come up from their washing, and so like, like a white sheep that have just been freshly washed. So, you know, she's brushed her teeth for her wedding night. That's a good idea, women. Um, <laughs> and gentlemen, it's good to brush your teeth. <laughs> and not only does she have nice white teeth, but she has uh, twins. They match. Notice, all of which bear twins. And so they are evenly matched, if you will. And then notice this. He says, not only that, but you have all of them. You have all your teeth. Not one among them has lost its young. In that culture, uh, as, as dental hygiene, probably it wasn't quite as, uh, as good as it is today. A wife that has a beautiful smile and all of her teeth was probably quite a delight for Solomon. And so he, uh, he praises her teeth and he moves on to her lips. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread, a, a scarlet piece of yarn or, or thread, if you will. And your mouth is lovely. And so I think he's saying you have a beautiful smile. Your lips are nice and red. Maybe he's referring to the thinness of them. We're not sure. But he praises his wife's lips. And then he moves on to her cheeks. Again, he's going right down, uh, his, his wife. He moves on to her cheeks, and he says, your cheeks are rosy, uh, rosy in color, rosy red. Notice what he says. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Who knows what a pomegranate looks like? Okay, a pomegranate on the outside has kind of a rosy red color, and when you cut it open, there are many little red seed-like things, and they're also kind of a cheery red. And so I think what he's saying here is that, you know, she's got a nice complexion. Her cheeks are nice and rosy. Um, possibly what he, what's going on here is she's smiling. She smiles. He sees her teeth. That's what you do on your honeymoon. You smile. You know, it's a good thing. Uh, what's going on here? And uh, possibly she could be blushing. Uh, she could have rosy cheeks or she could be blushing. And we're going to see here uh, down the t- in the text that she's a virgin. She's a virgin, and so uh, she could be blushing at, at what's going on here. Um, but she, he comments on her cheeks. Uh, moving on, he uh, moves right on down, again, the body of his wife, and he comments on her breasts. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says in verse 5 that they're soft, that they're delicate, that they are desirable. And then in verse 6, he says that he intends to enjoy them all night long. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, which were uh, baby deer, essentially. Two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. And so he looks um, at his wife, uh, and uh, he compliments her with the highest regard. He says, you are beautiful, uh, your breasts are soft and desirable. Uh, verse 5, he says, until the day breeze, verse 6, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, which is morning time, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of frankincense. Again, I think referring to uh, the breasts of his wife. And so he moves right on down. He's verbal. He's complimentary. He is enjoying his wife. He is looking at his wife. And he is nothing but tender. He is nothing but kind. He is nothing but loving, even though he might use some images that sound a little foreign in our ears. <laughs> but he is a, a wonderful um, Lover at this point. In verse 7, we see what I would call a kind of a summary statement. In verse 7, he kind of summarizes what he has seen thus far of his wife. And he says this. He says, you, my dear, are perfect. He says, you are perfect in my eyes. Verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. Notice this, gentlemen. There is no flaw in you. So let me ask you this question. He looks at his, uh, his new found bride 
And he's, he, he is looking at every part of her and he says, you're perfect. He says, you are perfect. He says, there's no flaw in you. And I think he's speaking about no physical flaw. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that this woman, his wife, do you think that she was perfect, perfect physically? Do you think that she literally had no flaw? Do you think that she literally had no element of her physical stature that she was uncomfortable with? Do you think that that's the case? I would venture not. I think every woman would tell you there is some part of them that they feel is somewhat inadequate or not perfect. But the beautiful thing here about biblical love and romance is that he looks at his wife and regardless of what he sees, he says, what I see is beauty. What I see is beauty. What I see is perfection. It's perfection. It's lovely. It's wonderful. It's perfect. And what we see is that he has given his wife His wife is his standard of beauty. You see that? His wife is his standard of beauty. What is beautiful to him? His wife. That is what is beautiful. Uh, Moving on into verse 8, we see the scene uh, picks up a little bit more. It's getting a little more intense. In verse 8, what Solomon does, he continues to speak. Essentially, Solomon speaks for several verses here, right up through verse 11. He is affirming his wife. He's speaking. And in verse 8, he gives a request of his wife, of his new uh, bride. And he essentially asks her to release her fears. Uh, He says, release your fears, and he portrays the fears that she has in this moment. Not only about uh, the moment that they find themselves in, but maybe about uh, about their uh, future relationship, about their marriage, about their life together, about the transition of moving away from her home to his. All of the fears that are churning in this woman... He likens them to frightening places, to, uh, to a dangerous mountain, to a, li- to a den of lions. And he says, drop your fears. Come away with me. It's going to be safe. I'm going to take care of you. Give yourself all of your thoughts, all of your attention to me. Notice what he says in verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, which I believe is maybe where she was from. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. That is, leave your house, leave your home. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the, from the peak of Sanir, and from Hermon. Those are mountains in Israel. From the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He is describing the fears, the hesitations that this bride has as she moves into, again, this, this scene of consummating their marriage and their life to be. And he says, come with me, come with me, leave the scary places, leave the mountains, these mountains, uh, in particular Mount Hermon was, was, was uh, quite large, and uh, when it could have snow and, and mist, it, it's just a scary place. He, he likens it to a den of lions, and he says, come with me. In verse 9, he continues on, and, and, and apparently his wife did this, because from uh, 9, 10, and 11, he then praises his wife, and he says, this is how your love is affecting me. This is, this is, this is how I feel. This is you giving yourself to me in this moment. This is how I feel. This is how it affects me. And so he, he, praises, he praises her love for him in verse 9 and 10. Read it with me together. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. My sister was an affectionate term uh, back then for a, uh, for a wife. You have captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Essentially what he says is that his heart is going pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. Um, his emotions are increasing. His heart rate is increasing. Uh, it's getting intense here. And he's saying, your love is beautiful. You have stolen my heart. Uh, all I have to do is, is receive one glance, one look. And my heart is yours. He says, all I have to do is look at one jewel on your necklace and my heart is captivated by you. Your love is better than the best of wine, better than the best of fragrance. This is the effect that her love has on him. And he praises his wife 
Uh, at this point, I think, um, it, it could be debated, but as far as I, I, I think, at this point, they have not touched. I don't believe there has been any physical contact at this point. What I think is going on is Solomon is looking uh, at his wife in the most intimate of times, their wedding night. And uh, he, notice gentleman, is very verbal. He's very verbal. He praises her with beautiful, romantic love and poetry. He is, he's quite, quite the poet here, quite the romancer, if you will. And so finally, I think this couple begins to touch. They begin to uh, head towards uh, heights of passion and consummation. And he describes uh, them, them kissing, which is where it all begins. And he also describes the smell of her clothing. Now, before we read verse 11, don't cheat and look at it. Okay, good. It's not up there. Don't cheat and look at it. I want to ask you as we read verse 11, what kind of kissing is going on here in verse 11? Let's read this. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So, uh, congregation, what kind of kiss is this? It is a French kiss, but no, you're wrong. No, it's not a French kiss. It's a biblical kiss. There we go. It is a biblical kiss. So couples, married couples, married couples... Married couples. It's biblical. That's all I have to say. Biblical, biblical. Uh, notice, though, the image that he uses here. A wonderful, wonderful image rooted in the Old Testament. He says that when he is kissing her, biblically, not the French wise, uh, biblically, he says that honey and milk, milk and honey are under your tongue. Does that sound familiar? Milk and honey? What's, where, do we, where have we heard that before? What is, is described as milk and honey? Where? where? The promised land. <laughs> the promised land is a land with milk and honey. And he says, this is the promised land, baby. <laughs> this is what he says. This is like going into the promised land. And then he says, not only that, but you smell your garments. And so I believe he's beginning to not only kiss her, but touch her. Your garments smell nice. Uh, you smell good. Uh, note, all of the senses are involved here. He, he looks, he touches, he speaks, he smells. It's a multi-sensory event, if you will. And it's good and right within the context of marriage. In verses 12 through 15, uh, we get, again, more intimate still. Uh, there is a progression going on here. Uh, their intimacy, their passion is increasing. And we see in verses 12 through 15, Solomon uh, describes his wife. He describes the most intimate uh, portion of her body. And he discovers and praises his wife's purity. He looks at his bride and he praises that, the fact that she is a virgin. Notice how he describes her in verses 12 through 15. Wonderful imagery. He says this. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked. A fountain sealed. And then he goes on to describe uh, her. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard with saffron, calmus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. Notice the repetition of that word. Choice fruits, choice spices. Verse 15, a garden fountain. He, he changes the image. He's described her as a, as a garden that is locked, as a spring that is locked or covered, as a fountain that is sealed. He then describes her as a garden fountain, a fountain flowing through a, a garden, a well of living water, so it's flowing, and flowing streams from Lebanon. He describes his wife and her purity in such vivid images. Notice a, a couple things. I just want to point out a couple things here. Um, notice how he describes her virginity, her sexuality. He calls her a garden that is locked. In those days, if you had a garden, a private garden, you would typically have walls around them and there would be a gate. And the, the owner of that garden would typically be the only one, along with maybe family members, who would have a key 
to that garden. Uh, and so only uh, people who were allowed into that garden, the owner and his family, could go into that garden. It was a private garden. And he describes her as a garden that had been locked. He describes her as a spring. We all know what a spring is coming up from the ground. Typically in those days, if you wanted to, to keep a spring private, you would cover it. And not only that, but he describes her as a, uh, as a, as a fountain that is sealed. You would seal or put your mark on a fountain to represent ownership. Do you see what he's saying? It's very clear. Very clear. He's saying that she is a private garden and not a public park. She is a private garden meant and intended and saved for only her husband. Only he has the keys to the garden of her most intimate bodily parts. He has the key. No one else. She is a private garden, not a public park. A public park, anyone can come and go as they please. That is not how she, he describes her. Secondly, her sexuality. Did you, did you notice the wonderful images that he describes? He describes her sexuality as, a, as an oasis, if you will, as a garden of Eden. It is a garden that has the best of fruits, the best of spices. Did you notice that? Choice. It's the choice. It's the best. It's not the leftovers. It's the best. And he describes her sexuality as a garden oasis of rare fruits, rare flowers, rare plants, expensive perfumes and trees. He is using this image to say that in the most intimate of, of moments between a husband and a wife, that it's like a good vacation. It's like going to an oasis in the midst of a life that is like a desert. That's what an oasis is, is it not? An oasis is a refuge and a relief from a harsh, hot, difficult desert. That's what an oasis is. And she, he says, that's what sexuality, that's what this moment is meant to be. It's refreshing. It's renewing. It's good. It's good. It's an oasis. It's an oasis. And so what we've seen uh, together in verses 1 through 15 is preparation. There is preparation for consummation of this marriage. We're going to make some further points here in a few minutes. What we see then, uh, verses 16 of chapter 4, moving in then to chapter 5, we see consummation. This will go a bit faster. Uh, what we see is finally the woman speaks. She responds to the verbal advancements, if you will, of her husband. And she, the key word here is she responds. She is responsive to her husband. She invites her husband into her garden. And you know what I mean. She is inviting her husband into her garden to consummate their marriage. And she says so like this. Verse 15. 16, excuse me. Awake. The first word she uses. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. The north wind was harsh. The south wind was gentle. Blow upon my garden. He has just described her as a garden with spices. And she says, Awake, O north wind and south wind. Blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. She is inviting her husband to her. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat, notice the word, its choicest fruits. Its choicest fruits. Interestingly enough, if you recall, a couple times in the books thus far, we've seen this couple, in my estimation, uh, as single. They meet each other. They're attracted to one another. They date. They go through kind of an engagement period before marriage. And we've seen a couple times uh, premarital passion flare up. You remember that? If you're with me, a couple times premarital uh, passion has flared up and the woman has said, I want you. I want you physically. I want you sexually. And Solomon or someone, someone, I, I believe Solomon, has said these words, if you remember with me. He has said, do not stir up or what? Anybody know? Awaken. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What's the first word that she says? Awake. Isn't that beautiful and lovely? Uh, until their wedding night? It's not time. Don't awaken love. Don't awaken passion. Hold off. But no longer. It's time. 
The time for passion and sexuality is now. Awaken. In verse 1, as we move into chapter 5, our last verse here, we see uh, that consummation has been had. Uh, the wedding night is over, if you will. And uh, notice the tense here, how Solomon uh, describes what has happened. Notice the tense in verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. What tense is that, friends? Past tense. It's over. The honeymoon is over. Uh, it's, it's a done deal. They've consummated their marriage. They're one flesh now. And I'm going to get a drink here before. Oh, there it is. Get a, get a drink here before we, we wrap this baby up. Thanks for uh, hanging in there with me. This is good, though, right? Okay, I hope so. Um, someone speaks. Someone speaks. And, and this is what they say. Notice at the end of verse 1 eat, friends, drink. And be drunk with love. And so someone speaks as if from outside or inside uh, the wedding chamber and speaks affirming their love. Someone speaks and affirms that what has just happened, the consummation of this godly uh, virgin man and this godly virgin woman is a wonderful and good and holy thing. Um, People kind of tend to, you know, we're not sure who this is. Some people think that Solomon is speaking here, but... No, I don't think that's right. I mean, he's speaking to himself. Some people suggest that it's their friends at the wedding party. That strikes me as very odd. You know, I'm not sure. You know, they kind of open the door and look in and say, hey, good job. <laughs> that's kind of odd. <laughs> I don't think that that's the case here. Who, who was, this is the most intimate of things between a husband and a wife. Who else was there? I believe God. I believe God speaks into the narrative here. And, he's, and he, he affirms their love. He affirms their sexuality and everything that has happened. And, and folks, this is, as far as I'm concerned, the epitome of sexuality. I don't think anyone, any of you guys, are as good as Solomon is as he speaks to his wife. And I don't think any of you females are quite as good as this woman is uh, as she verbalizes these things. This is the height. And God says, this is good. I made it. it it's good. Applications, we're going to get out of church a little late, but hey, we're talking about sex. It's okay. <laughs> right? Applications, here we go. Uh, I've got five applications for married folks, and I've got two or three for singles, and we're going to be done. Hang with me. Uh, married folks, application number one. Recognize the differences between you. Recognize the differences between you and your spouse. What we see here is that Solomon is visually aroused. This is very... Uh, very apparent because he praises her for about 15 verses about what he sees <laughs> and he likes it. He is visually aroused and that's true, generally speaking, and, and she is verbally aroused. He speaks words of tenderness and kindness. You could say he is uh, visual and he, she is relational, if you will, generally speaking. Tommy Nelson is a little more blunt and he puts it this way. Uh, Tommy Nelson says, pastor out of Denton, Texas, he says, women use sex to get romance. Men use romance to get sex, and God has rigged it that way. And I think, he, I, think, I think he's right. Generally speaking, I think he's right. And so a word to our, uh, our husbands here, husband, uh, a word to gentlemen who are married here. Uh, wives, yours is coming up in a little bit. Guys, let's try our best to be like Solomon. Let's compliment our wives. Let's, let's speak tenderly to her. Let's tell her specifically what you find attractive about her. Let's be creative like Solomon was in expressing your love and gratitude. What I've learned from five plus years of marriage, which is a drop in the bucket compared to most, several of you, but one thing that I've learned, and I'm not a dummy even though I don't practice it as well as I should, so maybe I am a dummy, <laughs> is that my wife can never hear I love you enough and that she can never hear why I love her, what I'm attracted to her about. And so on special occasions, I try to do that. And I try to write things out and I try to do that. Guys, let's do that. Let's do that. Secondly, not only recognize your differences, focus on your partner. I think what we see here is that sexuality is intended not to be a glutting of our own selfish desires. It's not supposed to be centered upon us and what we can get. It's supposed to be about our spouse and what we can give. And in that, God has rigged it so that both of our needs are met. In verses 1 through 9, Solomon uses the word I 
one time. And in those same verses, he uses the word you or your 21 times. It seems very apparent here that each are focused on one another, on pleasing their spouse in every way. And so here are a couple questions that I think would be good for you couples to ask yourselves about this. How can I serve you? How can I serve you in this way? How can I love you better when it comes to the intimacy of our marriage? Is there anything that I do or don't do that bothers you? Do you? Can I do anything differently? And these can be awkward questions, even between a husband and a spouse, but we have to go there. We need to go there. Recognize your difference. Focus on your partner. Third, make your spouse your standard of beauty. We've talked about this before. Essentially, he says, you are beautiful. And what he says is, I don't judge your beauty uh, by what I see uh, in the magazine rack. I don't judge your beauty by what I see on the internet. I don't judge your beauty about experiences uh, that I've had prior with other women. You are my standard of beauty. And so whatever you are, whatever you look like, whatever features you have, it's how I, what's what I call beautiful. And a quick word here. This is why pornography for those who are single and married, and this is why premarital sex for those of you who are single can be one of the many reasons why it can be so utterly devastating. Because what you do is you look at the screen and you look at women or men and you develop in your mind a standard of beauty. And then one day, if you're single, when you get married, what will be so very difficult is you will then look at your spouse and you will have a predetermined standard of beauty. You know what I'm saying? A predetermined standard of beauty that your wife or your husband most likely will not be able to live up to. And inwardly, you will be disappointed. That's why pornography and the same goes with premarital sex. Uh, experiences with however many people, whatever. Um, it's the same thing. You bring those experiences into marriage and you define beauty wrongly. So... Recognize your differences. Focus on your partner. Make your spouse your standard. Fourth, make sex, make your bedroom an oasis. Uh, again, he's used this image of it's an oasis, a refreshing, safe, fun place that you can go to when life outside of the oasis is, is, is a desert. And so a word to the wives, and I speak this um, as walking on eggshells, if you will, um, I spoke to my wife about this, and I asked her about this text. And so here's the deal, guys. My wife is, well, she's the, she's the uh, fi- final word on this. And so what my wife says goes. I'm sure she's right. She says that when she heard this, uh, both as she read and from other people, that what stuck out to her is that she, as a woman, needs to make the marriage bed an oasis for her husband as a way to serve him, as a way to be a stress reliever. When nothing is going right, when work is hard, when people beat him down and criticize him, it can be a place that he can go to. And it goes both ways, but I'm focusing on the women that he can go to, to not just to have his physical needs met, but to have his emotional needs met as well. She encouraged me to share with you, to say, don't just think of your husband's sex drive as, oh, good heavens, again, you know. Um, it's not just a physical thing for us. There is emotional elements that uh, that go on inside of us in a deep, spiritual kind of way in that moment where we feel safe and loved and, and it's an oasis for us. Fifth, measure your health, measure the health of your marriage by your sex life. It's one of the standards. It's not the only one, but it's one. It's one of them. I, I think that to a large degree, uh, the marriage bed is like a thermometer. When your uh, relationship is healthy, uh, the thermometer goes up, if you will. And when your relationship is unhealthy, it goes down, if you will. And I'm not just talking about frequency here. That's not just what I'm talking about. I'm sure there are a couple who uh, have uh, intimacy every day and their relationship is stinky. It's not, I'm just not talking about frequency, but the dynamics of it all. And the point that I'm getting at is that one thing is certain. If you are, um, if you're having issues in your marriage, if there is any kind of fox, remember the image, if there are foxes in your vineyard, it's going to show up in the bedroom. It will inevitably show up in the bedroom. And so to some degree, measure your health by it. 
Insert joke here, and then we'll wrap up uh, with the singles. Uh, Shelley shared this joke with me. There was a uh, uh, there was a, uh, a marriage conference going on at a church, and the speaker was up and uh, and said, "Okay, t- tonight is the uh, is sex. We're talking about sex." And so I just want to get a feel for where we are. Be free and open. There were singles, uh, uh, couples. Uh, there were married people, and uh, uh, some with their spouse and some without. And the couple, and they said, okay, how many of you have sex once a day? And a few people raised their hands. How many of you have sex once a week? And, you know, couples raised their hand. And it went on, and it went on, you know, longer and longer, once a month, every six, six months, whatever. And, it, and she finally got to the fact of, okay, how many of you have sex once a year? And everyone was kind of looking around, and there was one gentleman in the back who was married, and uh, his wife was not there, uh, thankfully, and he raised his hand proudly, and he waved, and he waved, and the guy next to him is like, man, you're the only one in here who's raising your hand, and not only is he raising, uh, raising his hand, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, some, some, fer- some force and fervor, but he has a huge smile, just a huge, giddy smile on his face, and he's like, man, I'm sorry, um... Why are you so happy about this? And the guy said, well, tonight's the night. (laughs) Okay, insert humor here. We're not just talking about frequency, but about the, the dynamics of it. Okay, singles, I'm sorry. We're running late, but hang with me. Singles, a couple things. We're going to sing and be done. Singles, view sex biblically. As simple, simple as that. View sex biblically. Sex is a good gift that God created for a husband and a wife in the right context, and it is the what I would call um, it's the uh, it's the consummation of commitment. It's meant to be the follow through, uh, and not the power of your swing, using a golf term. It's meant to be the icing on the the cake of marital commitment. That's what sex is intended to be, and it's good, and it's lovely, and it's wonderful, but like all of God's good gifts, it can be perverted and misused and damaging. It can be a crocodile. It can be a crocodile if you allow it to be. Frederick Buchner, uh, I think I'm saying his name right. He's written several good books. I, I like his books. Um, he says this, contrary to what some believe, sex is not a sin. I think within the context of marriage. Sex is not a sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, it's not salvation either. And so what I mean by that is sex is not gross and it's not God. It's not gross to be avoided, but it's not God. We're not supposed to live our lives for it either. It's a good gift that God has given. Singles, uh, not only should you view sex biblically, but you should practice sex biblically. And what that means is, okay, here we go. Crazy. Our culture is, you know, this is like ancient in our culture. Wait until marriage. Wow, it's, it's an amazing concept. Wait until you get married, not because someone says you have to. Well, God says you have to, but he, he ha- literally people, he has your best in mind. Singles, he has your best in mind. And I speak as one who has been in your shoes, and it's the best. If you do it right, it's intended to be wonderful. The, bri- the bride specifically is praised for her virginity, but guys, it goes both ways. In our culture, virgins who are women are praised. Guys who are um, young studs and have sex with tons of people are praised. And that's not biblical. Both are commended here, uh, in essence, for, for their virginity. And so I want to ask you, are you saving your garden for your future spouse? Or are you letting others pluck the choicest of fruits? He says that she has to offer him, it's a garden with the best fruits. And the reason it's the best is because it's not been plucked. You hear me, singles? The reason it's the best is because it has not been taken from. That's why it's the best. And she can offer it to him, and he can offer it to her. Third, it's the culmination of commitment, like I said before. Okay, here's, here's our final illustration, and we're going to sing. Sex is meant to be the icing on the cake of marital commitment. Uh, how do you build a good marriage? Singles and marriage. But how do you, singles in particular, how, how do you build a good marriage? Um, it's not a great illustration, but bear with me. Sex is like a fire. It's like, it's like grilling. Bet you never heard that before. Sex is like grilling. Bear with me. Um, when, and I'm no expert at this. Patrick, my good, my good friend and neighbor, got me this because he has seen me doing it wrong. Uh, the, good way to, the good way to grill is you build up a nice stack. You, you build a good foundation, right, and, and from the ground up. And this is inverted, so you build a foundation from you know, the top down. But you know what I mean. You get the foundation good and hot, and uh, it's steaming, and then it moves upward, and you get the coals white, 
and it will burn, right, for hours. Such is, is, is a good marriage. That's what sexuality is like. It burns for hours, and uh, it has the foundation of a marital commitment. Uh, but I wasn't a very good uh, griller, and so what I would do is I didn't stock my, my coals very high. They were kind of spread out, and not only did I do that, but I, I liked um, I like using this stuff. I, I, I said, Shelly, I'm going to go get some props. And she said, what are you getting? And I told her, and she said, are you going to light it on stage? <laughs> I'm like, what are you taking me for? <laughs> it's probably a legitimate question. Uh, lighter fluid. <laughs> and we digress. Lighter fluid. That's what happens when you talk about sex. Uh, lighter fluid. Um, what, what an unhealthy marriage, an unhealthy relationship, premarital sex is like this. You try to build your relationship and there's not a really good solid foundation of holiness and godliness and uh, pursuit of uh, purity and godly character. And, and, and their coals, if you will, are, are spread thin. They're not stacked appropriately. And then, and so you, you light it up and there's a little fire at the beginning, uh, but it goes dead. You know, it keeps going dead, and you blow on it, you blow on it, you want the fire to last a while, and it doesn't work. And so what, what you do is you take sex, and you go, and it goes, boom, as Patrick has seen me do on several occasions. And I've got, you know, <laughs> some charred brows to show for it. But, and, 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 and for a little while, you've got a huge fire, and you're like, it's great. We've got a good relationship. It's healthy. Boom. But after a few minutes, what happens? It dies down. And so you say, well, we have to do it again. And that is how uh, premarital sex is, singles. You are not building your relationship right. There is no good foundation. You are stacking your coals, if you will, uh, wrongly. And your fire is not going to last. It's not going to last. Because it's not how God intended for it to be. Uh, At this point, we are going to sing. Uh, And at this point, I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward. Thank you for letting me take more of your time than normal, but this is so important. We're going to sing a song, and we're going to sing about the cross of Christ. And the reason we're going to sing about that is at this point, as you're stretching, you're like, man, he's late. Uh, At this point, listen, focus, please. At this point, um, some of you may be feeling rather guilty, and some of you may be sad and hurt. Because you may realize that you didn't do it quite ideally. And you may be feeling a great amount of guilt. And I want to let you know, if you're a believer in Jesus, there's no place for condemnation. There's no place for guilt. That Jesus forgives sins, all sins, through the cross of Christ. And that you can be renewed and made right. And God is in the business of building healthy marriages and relationships. And so do not leave saddened and do not leave dismayed. If you are a believer in Christ, please experience the joy of justification and of righteousness by Christ alone and know that you can have a wonderful marriage. Even if you have not done it ideally, God can redeem any situation. So let's sing.